You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Period of the, good afternoon, so now we're in the period of the 10 days of repentance. And during the 10 days of repentance, we, um, we focus on the concept of teshuva, of re- repenting, and we talk about uh, returning and recognizing where we are, what we're doing, and the ideas that come with it in the Torah readings as well from Parshas Vayelech, Hazinu, this is the second to last week Torah reading. Last week we spoke about Moshe's passing. This week we talk about the covenant that Moshe makes with the Jewish people. But even more so, we look at what do all these things have to do as a whole in teaching us in the lesson for this year and for ourselves in reflecting from these special times and what we can learn from it. In the city Kazan, Russia, it's the, uh, it's the Tartazan uh, mountains, Tar- Tartisan, Tartisan, Uzbe- like this, Uzbekistan, Pakistan, all the different stands. So this is one of the stands, the capital city of Tartisan. It's a very big Muslim population there. But there's a lot of different other religions there as well. And fa- after 70 years of communism in that place and religion being undercover, and there were many, very, uh, very few of the youngsters that were involved in religion at all. So the leaders of all religions decided to get together and see what they can do to be able to improve the level of religion in the city. And everybody got together. There was this whole board meeting, the rabbis and everybody else there as well. And they were thinking what ideas, what the brainstorming, what they can do to perpetuate and to be able to get the youth involved. And all of a sudden, one priest gets up and he says that, you know, every single Saturday morning, I look out my window and I see a surprising image. I see a young man, a father, walking with his child together to shul. And he says, you look around, in general, when parents are going with their children, it's either the parent is schlepping the child to someplace the child doesn't want to go, or the child is schlepping the parent to someplace the parent doesn't want to go. Whether it's at a baseball game that the parent doesn't want to go, that the child is schlepping the parent, or it's at a doctor that the parent is schlepping the child, But how often do you see parent and child walking together in tandem? How often do you see a parent and child going together with the same mission, with the same idea, with the same enthusiasm, walking together in tandem? He said, that never happens. And the only time I see it is when this fellow, and he was talking to the Chabad rabbi, Rabbi Gorelik, when he walks with his son to shul every Shabbos morning. Maybe Rabbi Gorelik can tell us and advise us, what is it? in the Jewish religion that keeps families together. What we see over here is that Judaism has a special ingredient, has something unique in keeping us together. One of the most beautiful things about Judaism is that it always has to be celebrated with others. When we talk about davening, yamim Taivim, holidays, it's always talking about celebrating together. But it starts from, where does it come from? When God created heaven and earth. When God created heaven and earth, He created that person should not be an individual. He did, in fact, the only place where it says in the Torah, in the creation of the world, a negative, no, is not good for man to be alone. Meaning that we, none of us are individuals. Unfortunately, we live in a world today where you don't need anybody. The youth today, let's take the youth, they don't know what it means to pick up the phone and speak to somebody. Everything's by text. 
You don't have to play chess with somebody. You can play with a computer. You don't have to play games with seeing people. You're playing backgammon, uh, rummy cub, all on your phone, and you never have to meet another person. You can stay in your house for 30 days and not see a soul and get everything to your door. There's Instacart and there's all the different things that you need without seeing people and speaking to people. We've created a society, a life, and even now, even post-COVID, even more so, where people do not have to speak to people. We created individuals instead of creating communities. We created individual people living their own individual lives, and every so often they communicate by means, but not, God forbid, that they should have to talk to each other. Even before Yom Kippur, when everybody has to ask forgiveness, a text, he sent out a group text, he sent out a this, or even a Shana Tova, it's the same exact thing you're sending to every person, or even if it's not the same, there's a certain element lacking of communication, lacking of talking to one another, of having that level of communication. One, there were two mothers talking to one another and bemoaning this type of idea. And they said, you know, today there's no family life. Everybody comes around to the table and everybody's on their phones or whatever it may be. There's nobody talking to each other. There's no communication. So one mother says, you know what? I go into each child and I tell them you have to come to the table. I have to fight with each one. The other one says, I have the best idea. I go in, I turn off the router. All of a sudden, everybody comes running out of their rooms. Well, how come there's no internet? Finally, I get the family together. But why is it so important that we have to be together? Why is it so important the fact that people should communicate with one another, should hang out with one another, have that effect of being together, being in person with one another? What's so important about it? Why is it so important? And as we see, as we mentioned, Hashem made it, God made it as part of the fabric of our society. That we have to live as individuals, we cannot live as individuals. In fact, if you look in the creation of the universe of the human being, every single entity was created as its own besides the human being. The human being created was created from a limb. Why? To show that you are part of somebody else. You cannot live your own individual life. Every single person needs another person. In order for us to be able to achieve everything that we want in life, we have to and we are codependent on other people. No one person can do everything himself. Even if it's from the smallest sandwich that you're eating to the food that you have on your table, you can't do it yourself. There are many different people that are involved in order to make that thing happen to come to you. So automatically, we as, a, we as a human beings are not able to live as individuals. We depend on one another. And therefore, it is vital to our life that we communicate and are in a community of one another. And Judaism creates that kind of fabric. They say a fascinating story. There was once this, uh, two fellows, two brothers. One was a big businessman, one was a doctor. They had to... They ended up in Connecticut for some reason for uh, Yom Kippur. And they were looking for a shul to go to. And they found on the internet a certain shul. They printed out the directions. They were going to walk the shul that was closest to their hotel. For some reason, they got lost along the way. And they didn't know where they were going. They see a young kid with a yarmulke. So they ask him, do you know the closest shul that we can go to? So he says, there's actually a new shtibel that opened up right here. You can go to the shul. I'm not going there. I'm going to a different shul where it's like for youth. But this shul, they'll let you in. You have no worries. You can go into the shul. The two fellows go to the shul. They're sitting there in the middle of davening and all of a sudden an old man collapses. This guy being that he's a doctor, he went quickly and he went and he resuscitated and saved the person's life. Look at that. Divine providence. Divine providence. He happened to be in the shul. They went there. If there would have been someplace else, maybe the guy wouldn't have survived. So they decided that the following year 
they're going to go back to that same shul. You know, because there was a nice gesture that happened the year before, they went back to Connecticut, went back to that small shul, they were so welcoming to them, and they came back. The husband and the wife were now back from the hospital, and he wanted to thank the doctor who saved his life. And as they're talking, they asked him, how did you end up in the shul? So he said, how did I end up in the shul? Was we were walking to shul, there was a kid that we saw at a yarmulke that directed us here, and we ended it up here. They said, can you describe that kid? And describe him, and said, yeah. And oh, describe to give the description, and it happens to be that that kid that gave him direction was this guy that they resuscitated son. So you see a story where Hashem makes divine providence that all of us end up in the place where we're supposed to be, and we're meant to be, and God puts us that we should be together, therefore each other, because we need each other and we depend on each other whether we like it or not. This is more accentuated, and even more so in this year. This year, as we mentioned many times, is the year of Hakil. Every seven years in the Holy Temple there was a mitzvah that all Jewish people, men, women, and children were obligated to come to the Holy Temple where the king would stand up front and read for them the Torah. This mitzvah was mentioned in last week's Torah reading. It's actually the second to the last uh, mitzvah. It's the 612th mitzvah is the mitzvah of Hakel. And the 613th mitzvah is the mitzvah of writing your own Torah. Now, in order to understand this, all of a sudden, first of all, why is this the last two mitzvahs of the Torah? And why is it a mitzvah that every single person, men, women, and children, have to come to the Holy Temple and only there would the king read from them from the Torah? And why was this mitzvah saved? For with the day of Moshe's passing, that Moshe should tell this to the Jewish people right before he passes on. So there are many different questions that we can ask about this mitzvah. Question number one, if you want to give a class and the point of teaching the Jewish people is that you want to teach them Torah, you know that the same class that's for men and for women and for children, it can't be the same class. Any person that gives a lecture or gives a class knows you need to know your audience. Certain audiences need some things and certain audiences need something else. How is it possible that the king should get up there and teach one part of the Torah and it's good for everybody? Doesn't he have to know his audience, who he's teaching to? Number two, the second mitzvah, this, the last mitzvah of the Torah is that every single person should write for himself a Torah. In the past 3,000 years, how many Jews do you know that wrote for themselves a Torah? It's probably very seldom that people own their own Torah. Even in the later years where people had more money to afford it, even in today, how many people do you know own their own Torah? Maybe more than it was 100 years ago because people are more affluent. But still, you see great rabbis throughout the past 3,000 years that none of them wrote a Torah for themselves. But still, in all, it's one of the 613th commandment. How come it wasn't done? Moving on to Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, we see in the, Torah, we see in the prayers of, of Yom Kippur, we say, We bang our chests for the sin that I have sinned. And you mention a whole litany of sins. Probably 20 of the 22 sins that are mentioned, maybe, or let's say 15 out of the 22 that are mentioned, you've never done. And there are some that are very severe, of killing people, of adultery, of things like that. So why am I mentioning those? I should only go through and do the ones. Okay, this I did, this I didn't do, and I should confess for the ones I did. What's the point of me saying a bunch of sins that I didn't do? Step further, even in the words that you're saying it, you're saying, for the sins that we have committed. Who's the we? We are shamnu, bagadnu, I have sinned, I have committed. What do you mean you, we have sinned? Say, Ashamti, I did it. 
Take some responsibility. Why is it always somebody else's problem? Why is it we have sinned? Why don't we talk about the truth and say what you did? Who did it? It was me, and I made the mistake. Instead, we're starting to say sins that we never did. And not only are we saying sins that we never did, we're making it a communal problem. We did it. Imagine you do something wrong. You come to your wife and say, we sinned. No, you did it. I didn't do it. So if we look at all this together, and we look at all these questions, we'll be able to get an understanding and appreciation of what the Torah is telling us, that life, how we have to look at it as a whole, and not as individuals. What it means to be as one community, one entity, and in order for us to achieve any level of life or any level of uh, climbing in our service to God, we have to recognize that we're all part of the same, pu- pu- same puzzle. So when we talk about last week's Torah reading, Moshe on the seventh of Adar, telling us the dramatic time right before his passing, he calls the Jewish people together and he starts telling them the last two mitzvahs. This is the last part of Moshe's life. How does Moshe know that his part, last part of his life, his birthday is coming up? And he knows that on the 120th birthday, that's when God said there's a person's life. So he realizes that his time is coming. And therefore he calls the Jewish people and says, I am 120 years old today. I no longer can come and go. He realizes that today his mission is going to be fulfilled. And it says, Vayelech Moshe, Moshe went. So the commentary asks, where did Moshe go? Why was he going anywhere? 120-year-old man, where's he going? Nachmanides says he went from his tent and he went to all the Jewish people to say goodbye to them, to say the last wishes to all the people that he met, to all the people of his generation. But he didn't go empty-handed. He went to every single tribe and gave them a Torah scroll. He gave 13 Torah scrolls on that day, one to each scribe, one to be placed into the ark so they can always look back as reference and see to make sure that they have the right Torah. What was Moshe doing? Moshe was doing the last two mitzvahs that he told the Jewish people he actually was doing himself. He was gathering the Jewish people together, teaching them the Torah, but not only teaching them the Torah, but he made sure that every single Jew should know that the Torah that I'm giving to you is concrete, is eternal, and if you ever want to check it up, there's always a Torah in the ark that you can compare it with. This that I am giving to you is a gift for eternity. He gave them the ability that they can be able to live with the Torah, that they can study the Torah, that they can appreciate, that they can be able to take this into the land of Israel and always know that they have the Torah with them. He gave them security and serenity for the future. But what was Moshe telling them? He continues to tell them about the second to the last mitzvah of the mitzvah of Hakel. What was the mitzvah of Hakel? That every seven years, every Jewish man, woman, and child came to the Holy Temple. And in the Holy Temple, they built this beautiful podium. And on the podium, they would make it higher than everything else. And it was the only time a non-Kohen was allowed into the Holy Temple, into that area, in that area, other non-Kohen were allowed, but they're allowed to sit, which was the king would sit and read from the Torah for the Jewish people. That all of a sudden, every seven years, they would come unto the Holy Temple, men, women, and children. Why did all these millions of people have to come there? And the king would sit on top and read to them. Maybe do we have that in any other type of society? Will you ever have that the president comes out every seven years and tells everybody the Constitution to remind them what it is? 
Why does the whole family have to come there? Let the king go. If it's important that they should learn the Torah, let the king go like they do over there. You have schools and you study Torah and you learn about it. Why do they all have to come together? And over here, one of the commentaries explained as Moshe tells them, you gather the Jewish people to remember the time as if the Torah was given in Sinai. Just like when the Torah was given at Sinai. All Jewish people were there together, men, women, and children, to hear the word of God. So too, every seven years was a reenactment of Sinai. Moshe over here was telling the Jewish people that every seven years, there are millions of people who study Torah. But you know what happens when millions of people study Torah? There's all different opinions of the Torah. There's all different ways of studying the Torah, all different ways of looking at the Torah. But every so often you need to come together to recognize the validity, the strength, the holiness of the Torah. Just like it was given on Sinai. And just like when it was given at Sinai, there were millions of people who heard the word of Hashem and therefore it's undeniable. Like the famous expression they say that if a billion Chinese are doing it, there got to be something right. Over here we know if a million people, three million people heard the same thing, there must be legitimacy to it. And every seven years, the legitimacy of the Torah is again proven, is again shown, is again justified. So what Moshe was telling us over here, on his last, on his deathbed, if you want to call it, was showing the Jewish people proof, not only proof, but giving them a guarantee that this is the way they will be able to continue to study the Torah, that they will be able to appreciate the Torah. Then when he writes the Torah to the Jewish people, number one, he gave it to every single tribe. But he gave it to every single tribe that they can compare it to a Torah that's on the ark, but also that they should study it every seven years. Recognizing and understanding that every single part of the Torah is applicable for every single Jew in every single time, and that they have that validity that cannot be shaken. Then the Torah continues as well and tells us about the mitzvah of writing a Sefer Torah. Now, the mitzvah of writing a Sefer Torah uses the terminology, write this song. Some want to say this song means the song of Azinu. But we know the commentaries tell us it doesn't just mean the song of Azinu, it means the entire Torah. And a person should write the entire Torah just like we have Tvilin and we have Tzitzis, we have a mezuzah. But the question is, as we know, why then don't we find that many Jewish great sages throughout the ages have never written a Torah for themselves? Not only about us, but go back in the time of Moshe. If Moshe told the Jewish people, and his last will and testament and his last mitzvah was, write a Sefer Torah for yourself, why don't we find all the Jewish people at the time, at least the men between ages 20 and 60, if you want to say, go start hunting animals, take their hide, take parchment, and start writing Torah scrolls. And there's no record of any Torah scrolls of that time. You'll find millions of Torah scrolls. We don't record of the Jewish people doing it. Why don't we find it? So the Rush, which is one of the codifiers of Jewish law, explains, and he says that actually the obligation to write a Torah was because Jewish people at the time, that's the way they studied, was from the Torah scroll. Being that today we have books, Torah books, the mitzvah of writing a Torah scroll is today to buy Torah books and read from them and learn from them. So as long as we have a chumash or we have something that we can study from, then we're already following that commandment of owning a Torah scroll. That's the simple interpretation of the Code of Jewish Law. In fact, the Rebbe in the, the 1970s came out with a campaign later, early, late 1970s, early 1980s called Bayis Mali Svarim Yavne that every person should purchase 
a Jewish books, and our Jewish home should have Jewish books, and that's how you know what's a Jewish home, that every single home should be like a mini temple, by having Jewish books, and every home should have at least a Chumash, a Tillim, and a Tanya in their home that they can study from at all times, and even if they're not going to study from it, the very fact that there's those holy books in the home brings an aura of holiness into the home. In fact, many times when the Rebbe spoke about people moving into a home, he said, when you move into a new home, what's considered moving into a new home is that you bring Jewish books into the home, and you have bread and salt that somebody can eat from. That's considered moving into a home. A home means that you have your Jewish books there. So owning Jewish books was considered a way of owning a Torah and fulfilling the 613th commandment. But still the question is, the simplicity of the text is that you should write a Sefer Torah. That you should own a Torah. Why throughout the ages don't we even find, throughout the generations, anybody even participating with one another of purchasing a Torah? Someone has suggested at the time why you didn't see any of the Jews owning a Torah at the time was because Moshe gave them a Torah and that was their Torah. So therefore they didn't need to own a Torah, they had that Torah. And being that he gave it to them to study and the whole purpose of having a Torah to study was to study so therefore they didn't have to write a Torah. In order to understand that, we come back to our last two questions which was why on Yom Kippur do we say sins that we've not committed, we say them anyway? And why do we say it in a plural, we have sinned, not I have sinned? And with understanding this, we come with a whole new understanding and appreciation of individualism versus community. And the message that we can learn from Yom Kippur is that every single one of us was born to serve God together. The concept of a minion, when we serve God together, our prayers go up on high, as it says in Kel Kabir, that God does not reject the prayers of those that said in, in a community. So while prayer is something which has to be internal and between man and God, there's also a concept of prayer which comes as individual who is part of a community. For that reason, we find, even halachically as we're going to see soon, but the concept of is, if a person is studying Torah and he feels like this is my way of concentration, this is my independent learning, shouldn't that be better? And the Talmud says an interesting line, Oy chavrusa, oy misusa. Either you learn with a partner or it's the death penalty. What does that mean? Where does it come from? And a fascinating story. I'm sure you're all aware with the story of Choni Amagel. There was a fellow by the name of Choni, the circle maker. And the reason why he was called the circle maker was because one time there was an episode that the Jewish people needed rain and there was a terrible drought and they said they knew that Choni Hamagel, Choni's prayers go up on high and automatically get answered. So they went to Choni and he prayed and he made a circle and he told God, I'm not leaving the circle until the Jewish people have rain. And all of a sudden it started drizzling. So he said, God, I need rain, not drizzles. So it started pouring. He says, God, I need rain of blessing, not rain of curse, not rain of destruction. And it poured and it rained and the Jewish people had what they needed. So he was called Choni Amagel. He was a very important Talmudic scholar who lived at the era at the end of the Second Temple. And he always tried to understand what does it mean? Why was exile compared to a dream? It says, it says in Psalms, we were like a dream. If the whole exile at the time was only seven years, why did they call it a dream? Who can dream for so long? Who can have a dream for 70 years? And one time, Choni Amagel was traveling, 
and he saw a guy planting a boxer tree, carob tree. And he asked the fellow, how long does it take the carob tree to grow? So the fellow said, 70 years it takes to grow. So he asks him, 70 years? You're planting a tree that you're not even going to enjoy? So he says, my parents planted one for me, I am planting one for my children. What they did for me, I am doing for my children. So Tuchun Amagel heard this, and he was amazed, but he fell asleep. And he fell asleep, and he slept, and all of a sudden he woke up, and when he woke up, he sees a guy enjoying carob from the tree. So he said, are you the guy that planted the tree? He says, no, that was my father. And he realized that he slept for 70 years. With that he understood how it was possible for a person to dream for 70 years. But all of a sudden, Choni decided that what's he going to do after having such a good sleep and he was really refreshed? What does a Jew of a great Talmudic scholar do? Goes to the synagogue to go learn Torah. He comes into the synagogue and he's learning and he hears them learning and they're explaining and he hears that the rabbi saying in the synagogue in the talking to the yeshiva students and saying nobody explained this Mishnah as great and as good as Choni HaMagel. He says, wow. So let me explain it to them. So he jumps into the group studying and he says, I'm the Choni. I'll tell you what the explanation is. They look at him, you fell off your head. Choni HaMagel hasn't been around for 70 years. He says, no, 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 I woke up from my nap. They're looking at him like he's crazy. And they didn't want to listen to him. They almost threw him out of the shul. He says, no, I'm the Choni. I was just sleeping. He says, come on, learn with me. Nobody wanted to learn with him. With that, he turned to God. He says, I have nobody to talk to. Everybody thinks I'm off my head. He said, either I find somebody to learn with or take my life away. I'm gone. Living life as a loner, living life as an individual when I don't have anybody to correspond with, is not worth living. And that's when he died. With that, the Talmud says, what does it mean? Either you have a partner, or it's not worth living. It is always important to find somebody to learn with, to talk to, to have somebody in your life. You can't live on your own. You can't live alone. Even more so, the Talmud finds, even a, a sharper type of language. The Talmud tells us in the tractate of Brachas about a great scholar by the name of Rabbi Yechanan. Rabbi Yechanan, we know that his grade was a, he was as great as Jacob, our forefather. Rabbi Yechanan was from the leading sages of the Talmud, but he had a terrible life. A life where he had ten children and they all died during his lifetime. He used to walk around with the tooth, it says the bone, the tooth of his son, to be able to comfort people when people would say, where is God in all this? He says, look, this is the tooth of my last child and I still believe in God. You can also believe in God. That was his way of getting people to, to have their belief in God. And he said he was a person that lived through a dramatic life, to say the least. He also had a brother-in-law by the name of Reish Lakish. Reish Lakish used to be abandoned. And because of Rabbi Yochanan, he brought him closer back to Judaism. He married his sister. And Reish Lakish used to be his kavrusa, his partner in study. And whatever Rabbi Yochanan would say, Reish Lakish would be able to argue back and forth. And one time they came to a text in the Talmud where it was talking about a thief. And Rabbi Yochanan had what opinion? And Reish Lakish said, no, a different opinion about a thief. And Rabbi Yochanan said a comment said, ah, a thief always stays a thief. Because that's where Rishlakish used to be abandoned. Rishlakish was very offended by it, stopped learning with him, and ultimately left him or whatever it may be. 
Rabbi Yochanan was so hurt by it that there was no way that he was able to comfort from it and eventually he died because of his being upset because of it. What we see over here is the concept of having a study partner, the concept of having somebody to talk to, not being alone, having somebody in your life, being part of a community, being part of a general community was something which the Talmud accentuates and the Torah shows us that how it's important is. Even more so, Hasidim used to say about the Baal Shem Tov that he would always daven for a very long time. One time the Hasidim, and at the same time the Hasidim were davening, but he would go on for a while. Once the Hasidim hurried quickly, because they had to do something else, and then the Baal Shem Tov finished early. So they asked the Baal Shem Tov, why today did he finish early when he usually davens long? The Baal Shem Tov explains and says, when you're davening and I'm davening with you, then my prayers can go on high. But because you finished davening early, I didn't have that power and ability as well. So as powerful as the Baal Shem Tov was, he needed the people, the Hasidim that were with him to be able to help him work with him. And this is, I'm sure, everybody in their own life can see the importance of being and working together with somebody else. Kabbalah takes it even a step further. And Kabbalah doesn't only say the importance of being and studying with somebody, but even more so. You are that somebody. What does that mean? That I benefit the more somebody else has. It is not that we are individuals. We are created as individual bodies. But in essence, we are really one entity. And because of that, God created Adam as one single entity. As the Talmud says, the same way Adam was created one entity, so too it tells you that the entire universe, all people are one entity. So when you save one life, you save the entire universe. You hurt one life, you hurt the entire universe. But Kabbalah takes it a step further. The words are said, Kol Yisrael Arevim All Jews are not only a guarantor for one another, which generally means the word Arevim, but Arevim means also from the word sweet, but also mixed with one another. Every single Jew is responsible for one another. There's no such thing that you're living in an island. There's no such thing that you're living on your own. Every single person has a responsibility for one another. Not only that, this is not just a theory. This is not just, oh, a very nice slogan that somebody can put up and yes, we're all responsible for one another. But this has a practical application in halacha. For example, let's say you didn't hear shofar. I heard shofar already. And I heard shofar and I uh, fulfilled my obligation from hearing shofar. But you did not hear shofar. I can make the blessing for you to hear the shofar. As long as you're there to hear it. But I can make the blessing for you. One minute. It's your mitzvah. I did the mitzvah already. How come I can make a blessing for you? Because all Jews are responsible for one another. How come when I make a kiddush, I can have everybody in mind in my kiddush? Shouldn't you all have to make your own? No, because all Jews are responsible for one another. And therefore, I can have fulfilled the obligation for you. By me making the blessing, I can do it for you. So it's not just a theoretical, beautiful slogan, yeah, we're responsible for one another. There's actually a, comp- a practical application according to Jewish law. Because we are responsible for one another, I can fulfill my obligation with you or for you, together with you. But you may ask, why? How is that possible? How is it possible that I can fulfill the obligation for you? Because it goes back to the concept, we're all one unit. The same way the head fulfills the obligation for the foot, or for the hand. 
and the hand is holding the Kiddush cup, and the mouth is saying the cup, and that makes the entire uh, body fulfill the obligation, so too we'll all fulfill the obligation together. We are all part of one unit. All souls of the Jewish body are all part of one body. Every single one of them have the same body. And every single one of them is created as the Baal Shem, as the Alter Rebbe says in chapter 32 of Tanya. We are all part of one entity. We just have different bodies. We're separated by bodies, but we all are effectively one unit. And because of this, we even find that in different cases, that because we're all affected by one another, there was a person who once, uh, there was a person who was once having very bad issues with his leg. To the extent that they thought they might have to amputate, he wrote a letter to the Rebbe asking the Rebbe for a blessing. He was a rabbi that used to write books. And the Rebbe told him that by him teaching other people Torah, he himself will become better because of it. Why? Because by you making somebody else better, you're in effect making yourself better. By you helping another person, you're making yourself even better. The same thing we also find with charity. By you giving charity to another person, you in effect are making yourself healthier. You're giving yourself charity and avoiding that you should need charity. Every single person has that ability. And every single person has that ability to connect, to unite, and to appreciate one another. Because we are all part of this entire unit. The same idea. There's a, just an interesting uh, story that there's um, uh, uh, talking about responsible for one another. There was a story told about a fellow. His name was Rabbi Srol Rudinsky. He, was, um, he met a teacher in England. His name was Rabbi Aaron Danderovitz. And he told him a story about uh, when he was five years old, his father was very sick and was almost going to, almost, uh, was almost uh, you know, his life was r- right in front of him. And at that time, um, and he heard that all of a sudden something surprising happened. And he lived for another 40 years, and he lived and everything was fine. Many years later, after he passed away, this Rabbi Zol Rudzinski came to this fellow, Rabbi Arendanderovitz, and told him a story that happened 40 years ago. And he tells him, let me tell you something very interesting. He says, I and your father both survived Auschwitz. And when we came out of Auschwitz, we were very close friends. And 40 years ago, when your father got sick, the doctor said that we should uh, amputate the leg. And he was worried what's going to happen from it, because they were worried because there was a growth in the leg, and can touch the nerves and go up to the brain, and all the different things that were happening. And we were good friends, so your father came to me and asked me what I should do. And we decided that we're going to write letters to 23 different great rabbis, G'dayli Yisrael, and ask them what to do. This was right after the war, very difficult time. The world had no energy to deal with other people's pain, if you want to call it. Everybody was suffering on their own at the moment. And they did not get a response from anybody, but one. They got one response. And that response was from the Lubavitcher Rebbe 770 Eastern Parkway. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe sent a letter to your father at the time. And he said that the sick, and the person who's not well, should start learning the daily chitas, which was the chumash tilam and tanya, the way the Chabad Hasidim learned every single day. In the chumash, the first section for first Sunday, the second section for Monday. Then in the tanya, that's split up for every single day of the month. And then the tehillim, the way it's split up every single day of the month, should learn it. And he said he should learn it, and this will help him that he should have a speedy recovery. He says, your father was in a terrible condition. 
there was no way that he was able to learn anything. His mind just wasn't there. So I contacted the Rebbe's office and I said that the person who's not well does not have that ability to learn because of their condition. Is it possible what should be done? So the Rebbe said, the Rebbe responded that one of the family members should learn it instead of him. So I contacted again. He said he's a sole survivor from the Holocaust. He has no family members. So the Rebbe then said, then his friend who is asking the questions should be the one studying it for him. He said, I'm not a Chabad Chassid, this Rabbi Yisrael Rudzinski says, but I accept it upon myself to learn from my friend that he should be well. From then, he says, 40 years, I've never missed a day. And as you can see, your father lived. He said it took six weeks that your father totally got healed. And from then, he didn't even need the surgery. He was sent home and he lived another 40 years. He didn't even do it. Another Jew learned in his honor and he became better. The same thing we find always. We give tzedakah in memory or in honor of somebody because we can help for somebody else. It's not just a theoretical. It's a practical application. We can do things that can help somebody in the most practical and physical way. We can learn for them. We can daven for them. It doesn't mean that they're exempt from it. But we can also help their neshama. We can also help not only their neshama, but even them physically by doing things for them. The same thing the Rebbe also goes on to explain. The same idea when it comes, going back to our questions that we asked before. When we are all partners in the same mission, in the same goal, even though it may be a mitzvah for the individual, but all the Jewish people are one individual. So when we talk about writing a Torah, that's why the Rebbe in 1981 came out with the Sefer Torah campaign, that every Jewish child should be inscribed in a letter of the Sefer Torah, and that one Torah in the land of Israel, which it's written, is all Jewish people unifies them as one. Seven Sefer Torahs were already written. The same thing you also found during Corona when they wrote Sefer Torahs for people. They wrote a Sefer Torah that every single Jew can be part of and many Jewish people were saved, their lives became better just because they wrote a letter in that Torah. People were saying their own stories. And this just happened two years ago. They decided they're going to write a Torah and every person can buy a letter in the Torah and whoever bought a letter and people bought letters and they saw their life changed because of it. They were helped and healed because of the illness. Why? Because they now became part of a unity, became one of individual. They have something concrete. There was a something physical that brought them all together as one. When we write a Torah and some, every person buys a letter, it's not just buying a letter in a Torah. You now become the owner of that Torah. You now have done the mitzvah, the 613th mitzvah. But even more so, you are now part of a whole. You're part of a community. By default, because you bought it. Because you now participated in it. So just like it says in the Torah that you should have your own Sefer Torah, just like it says in the time that every single person should have their own Torah, so too, just like of course, it's better to have your own Esrog and your own Lulav and your own Sukkah and everything else. But what was the, in, in used, used to be before people were able today to afford every person owning their own Lulav and Esrog, there was one Lulav and Esrog for the entire city and everybody came and made the blessing on the rabbi's Lulav and Esrog and that's what the whole city had. 200, 500, why? It's yours. You participated, it becomes yours. The same thing with the Sefer Torah. You participated in the Torah, automatically it was yours. So when Moshe to his generation, what did Moshe do? Moshe said, Now you write for yourself. What did Moshe do? 
He gave every single tribe. Here is your Torah. You now become part of this Torah. And when he made them become part of their Torah, they now became one entity with the Torah. They all had now their own personal Torah. So there was no need for 600,000 people to go get parchment and write a Torah because they were part of Moshe's Torah. And they had it for Joshua's generation, for generations to come. And so too, in every generation, there was that communal Torah that brought the Jewish people together. The same ideas also. And that's why it's also important to note that if a person doesn't have a letter in the Torah, they should buy a letter in the Torah to be part of this community and to be able to fill that 613th commandment. And there are today something called Sefer Torah Klali, the general Sefer Torah, that any Jew in any place in the world can buy a letter and be part of that general mitzvah to be able to purchase that mitzvah. We over here did it many years ago. We did it twice, I think, already. That we were able to participate in the writing of a Torah. The same idea is also when the Arizal tells us why we're saying the confession for sins that we didn't do. Because maybe you personally didn't do it. But as an individual whole of the Jewish people, there's somebody that may have done it and we all have to ask repentance for that person. They asked the Arizal, the Arizal, you didn't do anything wrong. Why are you saying the confession? And the Arizal explained because all the Jewish people are one entity and when one person does something wrong, we've all done something wrong. And therefore we all have to ask confession. And the same idea is also when we say the words Ashamnu, Bagadnu, we all the Jewish people, one entity, we may look as individuals, but we all together have to communally take responsibility for one another. And for that reason, we take the responsibility as a family, we take the responsibility for each individual, for wherever they may be. So besides the concept that every Jew is one entity, one, we may be one body, but there may be different limbs, because of that, we have the Al-Chait Shechatanu, it's said in plural. What does this mean to us? Practically speaking, now that we're in the year of Hakel, Hakel, which means that the Jewish people getting together, just like they did in the Holy Temple, they all went up and Moshe t- and the king read to them the laws. Moshe did it to his people right before his passing. The same idea is also, we have that responsibility to be there for one another this coming year, to make that commitment, that make that resolve, to encourage Jews to study the Torah, just like the king did in those times. So do we today have to encourage, whether it's men, women, and children, to study more Torah, to learn more Torah, wherever it may be, regardless of where it may be. And not only that, to get together as Jewish people, to get together for the sake of Torah and mitzvahs, not to be individuals living in our own lives and forgetting about everybody else or just doing things, but remember that we are part of a whole of a community. And this way it inspires, one inspires a second person, inspires a third person and a fourth person, bringing together the Jewish people, just like in the time of Hakel, which hopefully will all merit to the ultimate Hakel, the coming of Mashiach will together be in the Beis HaMikdash.